Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. My guest in this episode is Sandrine Ungari, head of cross-asset quantitative research at SockChem. Sandrine cut her teeth in the industry as a fixed-income pricing quant, but made her way over to sell-side investment quant research in 2006. Her early research focused on credit and macro, but since 2012 has been heavily focused on equity and alternative risk premia. Our conversation begins with equity factors, and Sandrine provides insight both into how factor construction has evolved over the last decade, as well as her thoughts into where the field is headed. We broaden our discussion to include alternative risk premia, and Sandrine provides a useful mental map for categorizing this broad range of strategies. We discuss the risks of crowding, latent beta risk and levered factors, and the influence of macroeconomics. More recently, Sandrine has focused her research in the application of machine learning and strategy construction. We discuss one particular example, the application of recurrent neural networks and trend following, and Sandrine shares her views as to how machine learning might affect factor investing going forward. Sandrine also shares some interesting ideas about where the future of risk premium might emerge from, but you'll have to tune in to hear. Please enjoy my conversation with Sandrine Ungari. Sandrine, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here. Coming all the way from France, getting quite a bit of a time difference here and recording, but super excited to chat. I know that before we do, you have a little bit of a compliance memo you need to read for the listeners. So why don't we get that out of the way? Hi, Corey. Yes. So I just wanted to say that views expressed here are my personal views and neither Societe Generale nor its subsidiaries or affiliates accept any responsibility for liability arising from the use of all or any part of the material from this interview. That's all I had to say, Corey. Wonderful. Well, that tees it up nicely because it's clear here that you do work for SockGen. And my suspicion is that there's a large number of my listeners who unfortunately don't have access to your wonderful research and may not know precisely who you are. So why don't we tee it off with your background? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into the industry and came to the role you're in now. Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot for the question. So I guess I started to work quite 
some time ago in the financial industry, I started to work as a quant, as a pricer quant. So originally, I was designing pricing models for interest rate derivatives. And then I fell into the bucket of investment quants. So I started to work for Sargen in 2006 in the role that I'm still on at the moment. And I started to look at markets, financial markets through the lenses of models, using all the models that I had carefully, painfully maybe studied before. And that's how I started my journey into investment strategies. Back in 2006, we were mainly concentrating on uh, relative value trades from a discretionary background in either credits or interest rates. And when 2008 crisis hit, well, credit went much out of fashion and we started to get more interested into systematic strategy and deploying our models for systematically trade markets. And that's how, I guess, starting in 2011, 2012, something like that, I started to be interested in systematic strategy and using backtesting frameworks to test the validity of models. And that's where my journey into risk premium investing gets get all started. And I guess that brings me in front of you today just to uh, discuss what systematic investing and risk premium strategies are about. And I am definitely excited to dive into that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, was this podcast definitely has a bias towards buy side investors. A lot of the folks I end up speaking to are asset managers. I would love to get your perspective as someone coming from the sell side. What do you see as being the primary differences between a buy side and a sell side quant researcher? Yeah, that's right. I was looking at all the guests that you hosted so far, and I was quite flattered to see that I was the first sell side quant. So thanks a lot for that. I guess there, first of all, in, on the sell side, you find a lot of quants, but they are more pricing quants, risk modeling quants. They have a role in the bank as to help the bank to hedge products or design products. They're very much product oriented, especially at suction. What I'm doing is much more in line with what my clients do on the buy side. So that's something that I would call investment quants. So as investment quants, we're interested into the dynamics in the markets, but not, not the dynamics that allows you to price structured and complex products, but more into the dynamics of the market that would allow you to make money at some point. <laughs> so in, in that sense, although I'm working on the sell side, my job is very similar to what a buy side quant would be interested in. So I'm very much focusing on statistical learning, how to use statistical models to calibrate systematic strategies. How do you think about portfolio allocation while taking into account historical correlations, left tails behavior, distributions, historical distribution, etc. So I'd say an investment quant is, if you put it in a modeling language, an investment quant would be very much interested into modeling the historical distribution or the historical measure, while sell-side quants more interested into pricing would be more interesting in modeling the risk-neutral measure. So in my work, I'm more inter interested into the historical measure. Even though my job re resembles very much the, the job of a buy-side, there's still differences there because I'm not managing money. And I guess that's the main point. 
and as I stated to start with, I'm not. Uh, my views are not linked to any company's views or any in AUM basically. So as such, I'm more. I guess my role with respect to my clients is more of a consulting role, investment advice role, investment advisory. So in this perspective, it gives me the opportunity and the quite unique chance of looking at a wide range of investments use cases. Because I'm not working for only one investment manager, I'm working for potentially all our clients. And that gives me exposure to a lot of different business cases. Every asset manager out there have their own institutional mandates, their own investment constraints. And the great thing about being a sales quant is that you are, you get a little bit exposure about what the clients are potentially doing. Well, that is one of the things that I notice when reading research from sell-side investment quants is that it does tend to span a very wide breadth of research agendas. It's not just focused on how do we make value investing work? It's all sorts of different applications. Whereas on the buy side, you obviously tend to see much more of a focus around whatever product that firm is is making available in the market. Their research naturally tends to focus much more heavily in that area. Given that open-ended mandate, how do you think about structuring your research agenda? It seems like you've got a wide field to play in. How do you know where to go? That's a very good question. It gets me scared sometimes because <laughs> you can go so many different directions. And at the end of the day, you still have to make yourself relevant to your clients. So even though you have the freedom of choices in a way, you're still linked to basically staying relevant to your client base. And I think that that's what's guiding, in very loose terms, this is what is guiding my my research agenda is how do I stay relevant to my own clients? What are the topics that will still be discussed in a year, two years, three years times? And in a way, because we're, I'm lucky enough to discuss with a lot of people. So whenever you have a new trend emerging, you sort of, if you're careful enough and if you know how to listen enough, you can catch that. And I guess it's how... All that research on risk premium invest, invested got started in 2012 is when some sales guy and some came to see me and they said, oh, you know, in the equity world, at the time I was like fixed income quants. I was very much interested into swaptions, related strategies using interest rates, derivatives, very much into trying to measure correlations in financial markets. So nothing to do with factor investing on risk premium. And one guy came in and they said, Oh, but you know, if lots of people are talking about factor investing in equities and risk premium investing in equities. And from my fixed income background, I said, yeah, yeah, risk premium, it's, it's easy, it's carry, right? It's like you're selling a 10-year bonds and you're getting some duration premium in forward. That's risk premium. I said, no, 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 it's not that. It's about trend following, quality investing. And then I started to dig up. And well, I guess seven years down the line, it, that topic is still relevant. So <laughs> at the time we had to make a decision to start to research about that. And I guess that's how I tried to, to gear my research agenda. So back in 2010, we had some colleagues coming back. They went to do some studies in at Stanford and they studied with Hasty and Tipshurani, the guys who authored the elements of statistical learnings, which to me is like the very first book you need to read if you want to do machine learning. 
And back in 2010, no one in finance would talk about machine learning. It was just a concept. And we said, oh, this is the, the elements of statistical learning. This is exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn statistically from financial markets. So let's try to apply all those techniques there. We started to develop a lot of models using their books in the business cases that we were facing. And I guess that's how little by little we stay relevant because that topic becomes so much, so much uh, popular. And just for clarity, I probably should have asked earlier, who are your clients? They're mainly institutional investors. So all the, the range of institutional investors I can find out there ranging from pensions to uh, sovereign wealth funds, private wealth managers. We also talk a lot to uh, asset managers, institutional asset managers, and also hedge funds. So it's pretty much all the, we're covering pretty much all institution clients of the bank. So as you mentioned now a few times, that sort of cross-asset risk premium and equity factor investing really seemed to take hold in the industry around 2012, 2013, really accelerated um, I can speak particularly from a U.S. perspective here in the U.S. at least, really seem to accelerate 2013 through 2015. I would love to get your perspective now that we are closing on, on eight to 10 years of real adoption in the space. What do you see as the future being? I guess that's the good thing about quant investing in general, and with Premier Investing in particular, is that's an area of innovation. So it started in the 70s with Fama and French and all the equity guys and equity factors. It started to develop in other markets, but that's, that's an area where really innovation is focusing on. That reminds me when I was working as a quant in the 2000, 2005, innovations in banks was lying into pricing models like all the HGM, BGM, the Heston's stochastic volatility models, whatever you name it. And that now that innovation, it's not a field of innovation anymore in a way, because the models are there, they're very well set up, or not so well set up, but they're there, they're being used. So there's no more new developments there. And the new developments are really happening in those investment strategies. That is that falls under the labeling of risk premium, but it's much broader nowadays than risk premium. You can extend that to a quantitative strategy. So in, in the jargon, we call that QIS, quantitative investment strategies, that groups together risk premium strategies, but also other strategies that relates to hedging, for example, systematic hedging, or that relates to some execution algorithms. So I think there's a lot of innovation happening in the field. And going forward beyond the risk premier concepts, the future of all that is really trying to trade systematically markets to provide investors, institutional investors, but maybe down the line retail investors also, other tools they can use to better manage their portfolio. There's maybe two discussions there. There's the classical risk premium discussions, which is how do you generate alpha in general? And that's the really, really challenging one. Then there's these other discussions, which is how can you use systematic strategies to arrive to a better portfolio outcome? Because you're doing things systematically, because you're putting in place a hedging overlay, because you're doing some very clever risk management of your portfolios. 
So a lot of opportunities there. In one of our prior conversations, one of the really interesting comments that I sort of kept in the back of my head was this idea of risk premia going from not just something that exists in the market you can capture, but potentially something you can transfer between parties. So this idea of saying, well, the bank for perhaps regulatory reasons needs to offload some type of risk to an institution that institution might be interested in holding that risk because it might have a premium with it, but it's just something the bank no longer wants to hold. How much of your focus is on that sort of approach to the future of risk premia? Part of it. So that concept is very interesting because it's the concept of what I call alternative, what I call trading premia, if you want. So in that whole spectrum of risk premia, you have the academic premia, which are the pharma French type of premia, momentum, value, quality, growth, profitability, with which a lot of investors have made their fortune, right? We are sort of seeing the returns levering out from those styles or those premia. We see value investing, for example, is facing great challenges. A low vol investing has faced quite a few challenges in the past crisis. So all those premium have, have their own challenges. And what we're seeing is that getting away of those academic premia, you have a new range of premia, which are emerging, which are called trading premia, which are more, they're less academic in the sense that they're, for some reasons, academic have been less studying those strategies or those premier because of data access, because of very fine practitioner knowledge, but they still exist. And one example of that, as you mentioned, is with all the regulations, the banks are being constrained on their balance sheets to do some form of activities. So they're Nowadays, every bank who wants to do structured products have limits on very exotic things like correlations, like skew, like vol of vol, like recovery rate in credit, for example. There's limits on all those implied parameters. Once banks have done a lot of structured products, those parameters might be saturated, which means that the banks cannot do the business anymore. So there's a way to... And there's an interest for the bank to recycle that risk to a final investor who would be interested in, in, in hosting the risk and taking the risk on behalf of the bank. And that sort of activity was, was very popular before the COVID crisis. It's slowing down now, but it will come back eventually because there is a real economic rationale behind it. On the one side, the bank needs to offload that risk to be able to make more business and then they're part of, of its activity. And the final investors is happy to carry that risk because he gets paid for it. So there are a few strategies like that that we are so challenged with that is to do the to be able to package them in a in a systematic way. A few of them are doing the, are doing are doing that. Things like I've worked on a few of those like repo arbitrage for example strategies allowing you to get exposure to the slope of the cost of funding, which is a way to provide funding on the very long end to investors who need it. Or things like arbitrage on dividends, for example, is another example. Although dividends are a little bit more challenged at the moment for other reasons. But yes, it's alternative, alternative risk premium or alternative squared, if you want. 
So I'll, I'll return us back to maybe the more traditional alternative risk premia. One of the things I have noticed is that a lot of the early academic papers within the world of factor investing were utilized very naive sorts in portfolio construction. A lot of the initial products that came to market were very simple in their construction. Over time, a lot of the research has evolved in the application of how these factors should be incorporated into a portfolio and how that, especially on the equity side, how it should actually be constructed. What is your perspective? What have you seen in the evolution of factor construction over the last decade? The market that is the most mature in terms of factors is equity factors. So I think we'll have the opportunity to get back to other type of factors, but let's focus for a moment on equity factors. Equity factors have had quite a good time, I'd say, until 2010, something like that. The discussion around the construction process of equity factor wasn't so so relevant because when you have performance, you're less concerned about the the construction of your factors. So it was more like you rank stocks on a given criterion on a given indicator. So that can indicator can be anything. It can be the past momentum of stocks. It can be the past mean reversion. It can be the, the level of debt. It can be the average analyst sentiments. So you take all sorts of metrics for your stocks. You rank them from the best to the worst. And then you construct the top quantile versus the bottom quantile or the top quintile versus the bottom quintile. Every Everyone Every quant has his own taste on that. Originally, the way that it was done, it was just equally weighted. So you would just buy the first quantile, sell the, the worst quantile, and you would construct an equally weighted basket of long stocks versus short stocks. So a lot of people are doing that. Now, quite earlier on in our research, what we say is that you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be shorting the bottom quantile of your indicators. Because let's say you have a very good indicator to identify value stocks. So that means that you have something, take the PE ratio, for example. The PE ratio tells you which stocks are very much undervalued. That indicator now might not be a good indicator for anti-value stocks. So very earlier on, we say, well, you should not, you should not really do long the stocks versus short the stocks. You should be doing long the stocks versus short the market. So short the form of market cap index. Now, if you do that, you start to see some biases there because your long basket of stock is equally weighted. It's not sector neutral to your market cap index. So you start to introduce a lot of biases that are not necessarily desirable, like sector biases, biases on other metrics, geographical biases. So what we had done quite some times back, we had we've developed a, a way to allocate to stocks, changing the equally weighting scheme to a, a scheme that would help us to cancel out the biases. So we would have a long value stocks that would really be value stock. There would be no other biases, no market cap, no size bias, no no sector bias. So that's whenever a sector is overperforming versus, versus another one, we don't get that exposure. So that's, I think, in terms of factor construction, it's, it's the evolution that we're seeing that has happened. So people have been more thoughtful about 
how do you weight your, the, the, your stocks in each basket? Do you short a basket of stocks or do you short a benchmark and all those sorts of things? The next step for me is that what more and more people are realizing now is what we've been doing as equity quants is data mining exercise. It's a massive data mining exercise going back to Fama French, which is to say, let's, let's look at a set of indicator. Let's rank the stocks according to this indicator and let's see if it makes sense and you can make money out of it. So in those days, more and more people are realizing that if you want to do data mining, it's good. I mean, that's what we all do. Data mining is not a bad word. It's a good concept, but you should do it in a modern fashion. And to do it in a modern fashion, we have modern tools to do that, which brings back to machine learning. So you can learn, you can use statistical learning, or you can use more advanced algorithm, deep learning, why not? But you can do things that will allow you to identify what factor are efficient to trade the stock market. And by doing so, you, you have a construction process that is robust, not only come to the market cycle, but it's also robust if you change regime, for example, or if some factors are working best or some factors are working not so well. So one of the things that just struck me as you were talking about this evolution of factor investing in early days, when everyone had maybe, and still does perhaps have these unintended bets, you see more dispersion among factor investors, that two people implementing the same value portfolio maybe would have not as much overlap in what they're holding. Is there a risk that as investors move towards more and more pure implementation, there's greater convergence and crowding in these trades that could either lead to either greater disruption in, in the existence of the risk premium or a greater risk of crashing? Yeah, that's the usual pushback that you get for the underperformance of equity factors sometimes. There's a risk of that. Now, if you compare to where we were in 2007, for example, in the big quant crash, there's a lot less leverage in the market. So hedge funds, equity neutral hedge funds are much less leveraged. So yes, you have overcrowding on some stocks, but you have probably less overcrowding than you used to be before the total leverage was controlled by regulations. Now, the answer to that, in a way, this machine learning can be an answer to that because if you see more and more people trading the same factor, then you start to see that factor underperforming. And then if you're adaptive enough to capture that, then you can deleverage that factor and go in, onto another factor. So I guess the as returns of the, all those factors have collapsed or have levered out, you can do a much greater job in monitoring the, the performance of those factors and trying to add a timing dimension to those factors, which can be brought into, into the picture through machine learning or through other other timing mechanism, basically. So on the same sort of line of thought as crash risk and maybe liquidity sensitivity, one of the arguments that you often hear about alternative risk premia, so maybe going, stepping outside of just equity factors and now broadening the scope to the full collection of alternative risk premia, is that all the diversification seems to be there precisely when you don't need it, when equity markets are doing well. But in tail events, they all seem to be ultimately susceptible to the same liquidity margin collateral risk. How would you respond to this criticism? 
Yeah, I hear that criticism very often. And also here that you have a lot of hidden beta into risk premier strategies. So to that, I want to say two things. First is that we are in the in a world of long shorts, long shorts plus short volatility. So most of those funds, most of those strategies are, are try to be neutral in beta, but one way or another, they're either long or short volatility. So yes, they have some beta exposure, but they have some beta exposure through the volatility channel. So it's not a direct exposure. It's because volatility correlates negatively with the stock market. So once you've said that, you've said it all. So what you need to manage in those funds is your risk, your volatility risk. Problem that we had in 2017, that all started in 2017, but it also was the case in 2018 and 2019, is that yields were so low and so compressed that a lot of investors engaged into some form of volatility selling and taking only one side of the trade, which in a way it's a very ill-designed portfolio construction process because you're, you're not trying to diversify away your short volatility risk into some long volatility components. Now that's the risk that we, I mean, I've, we've been highlighting in our research for the past two years, at least. In our baby portfolio that we have, which are pure paper-based, I've always had this sort of tail risk hedge strategy to cover up the tail risk or the volatility risk that you have in those portfolio, and which manifests themselves obviously only when you have a crash in volatility, like February 2018, to some extent, December 2018. So all those events where, yes, you have beta risk into the portfolio, but because you have volatility risk. The other thing that I wanted to mention too is that you had the China hard landing, and then early 2016, you had rates starting, keeping on going down. So you have a massive investor massively going into low vol and quality. And then in the summer 2016, you had rates going higher up, but you had this big rotation between low vol quality into value. That created a lot of losses in equity factors. I mean, one of the things that quants, I feel like quants often ignores these macroeconomic factors. We almost tend to focus again so solely on things like measures like value or low vol or quality and look at our sorts and create our long short portfolios. And I think maybe cross our fingers and hope that via diversification, we're avoiding these macroeconomic factors, but clearly they have some influence. So from your perspective, how should we be thinking about that influence when it comes to portfolio construction? That's a good point. And I'd like to go back to the definition of the macro factors. So I guess that two ways to define the macro factors. It's one way, which is very quantity. So imagine if you have all the assets in your markets and you're doing a form of principal component analysis. So you're trying to identify the latent factors which are driving the market dynamics. And you end up having a, like a growth factor, a currency factor, a systemic risk factor, monetary and fiscal policy factors. In most of cases, risk premier strategies are very much neutral to those factors because that's the way they're constructed. They're constructed as the long, short versions of those assets. Apart from 
short volatility strategies, for example, because for short volatility strategies have this correlation to the growth factor through their volatility and the correlation between markets and vol. So if you look at market factors defined like that, risk premium strategy tends to be relatively neutral. But if you look at long-term cycles, look, long-term macro cycles, if you, if you look, think about recession, expansion, contraction, etc., or if you think about monetary cycle, which are long-term cycles, or if you think about price cycles, like high-risk regime or low-risk regime, then you start to see differentiation in the strategies. So value, for example, tends to perform well in a risk-on environment and tends to underperform in a risk-off environment. Carry strategy tends to perform well in an accommodative monetary policy environment and tends to underperform in a, in a tightening environment. So you do have, if you look at the long-term pictures of those factors, you start to see emerging some form of patterns, which in turn you can use to drive out the investments depending on where you stand in the cycle. Now, there's a big debate out there, which is timing versus non-timing factors. <laughs> I think it's a famous quote from an asset manager and a guy from a research company. I'd say both are right and wrong. Uh, there's truth and knowledge to be get to harvest from listening to a lot of different people. But what I've noticed is that in a world where all your strategies are performing really well, you don't care about timing because if you say you have a, sharp a strategy that has a sharp ratio of one and you mix a bunch of strategies which have a sharp ratio of one, then by the virtue of diversification, you'll get to some fantastic outcome. In a world where premium are compressed and your average strategy may return something like two, three percent while it was returning maybe six or seven percent before, you get your potential losses are much higher. So you can get a much better, you can do a much better job at trying to time your left tail, basically, because you have more occurrences of that left tail. In a world where premium are compressed, returns are challenged for whatever reason, being crowdness, being central banks, being other reasons, then knowing the macro behavior of those factors and adding a sense of timing in the platform construction process is very important and becomes more and more relevant. I think there's a great deal of things to be looked at when you look at those factors across cycles. Even if the measure is not perfect, even if this cycle is different to the next, <laughs> and definitely the cycle that we're in is different. But at least you get some sort of knowledge of what can be happening in the future. When we look at the full sort of palette and spectrum of alternative risk premia, and we consider that how they exist across different asset classes, equity indices, currencies, commodities, rates, we think of different styles that can be applied and think of the things like when they apply within a different macroeconomic or monetary cycle, it all gets a little overwhelming, to be quite honest. Do you have a framework that you use to sort of think about how these different risk premium strategies are categorized and perhaps how they fit into an institution's portfolio? Yeah, well, we do a lot of work on that. So it's <laughs> so it's going to be a bit challenging to do it on the <laughs> 
on audio only <laughs> because one of our greatest tools to uh, describe respirma strategy is what we call a minimum spanning tree which is imagine you see the london tube map yeah i've got exactly the same thing but instead of london tube station there are all different strategies <laughs> so that's how the minimum spanning tree looks like Obviously, there are some signification, meaning behind distance <laughs> in the minimum signing tree. So whenever two points, so imagine two tube stations are very close to each other, that means that very well, they are very well correlated. And they are, when they are distance, they are very decorrelated or they don't resemble to each other. If you want a minimum spanning tree, that sort of visualization technique Onto a diversified portfolio of risk premier strategies, you'll see appearing three different buckets for three different main groups of strategies. One which is quite obvious, they are mainly all carry strategies, all the short volatility strategies. There are those strategies that are called uh, risk on bond off. So typically the strategy that will do well when risk appetite is high, when interest rates are rising, and I would do not so well in the opposite situation. Then you have another group that are called risk of bond on, which is quite clearly the opposite. So strategy that will do well when risk appetite is low, risk aversion is high, and when rates are going lower. There are things like quality investing, any form of defensive strategies, hedging strategies belong there too. Some form of carry strategy in rates too are here. And then you have a third bucket that are called risk on bond off and they tend to perform well either when you have a strong risk appetite or when yields are going down are going up so bond off so typically value investing is of that sort so value value investing will underperform if you have a lot of risk aversion but will tend to perform well if you have a rising rates environment so when the bonds are underperforming so once you've got these two, three big buckets, then you sort of, you start to see the sort of strategy mix that you want to achieve, or you start to see, okay, if my portfolio is a little bit defensive, I want to have more risk on strategy and vice versa. So there are tools to categorize strategies, to know their risk profiles and to know what to add in a portfolio. And then the other thing that we're doing is, um, we are looking, we, we are running all sorts of analyses to see, take a portfolio, let's say, and because an investor will have its own style, maybe a portfolio manager will be more like Warren Buffett, a value investor. Some other managers might be more like Nassim Taleb, they might be more conservative and prudent. So you can run tools to try to define what factors exposure a portfolio manager would have. And then you can use this analysis to in turn to do some form of completion to this portfolio to broaden up the scope of the portfolio or to, to add uh, some form of premium that can bring diversification and that can bring alpha. So there's all sorts of analysis that we can do. Given the broad breadth of style premia that have now been defined, both sort of traditional and non-traditional. And it feels like so much effort now has gone into the evolution of portfolio construction. 
I would love to know, do you think there's still risk premia out there to be discovered? Or do you think we've sort of discovered everything at this point and now it's about sort of sharpening our focus and how we implement them? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of things to be done in fixed income. There's been very few research and very few investment solution in the bond market. So now that market is very challenging. You have central banks actively trading that market too. Liquidity is relatively low. But in terms of research, it's a, it's a fantastic ground of discoveries. And it's very different to equity factors because debt dynamic is completely different to equity dynamics. So I think I'm seeing great research coming out of asset managers in particular on that topic. And that's clearly a field that is in expansion and has application way beyond only the risk premium investing, but also you could see like smart beta ETFs, for example, using bonds of funds from asset managers. So definitely a fixed income is an area of discovery in a way. <laughs> and then you have what we've mentioned earlier on is anything related to trading premium. So those form of alternative carry that are being created by some flow imbalances in the financial world. So you have some retail guys buying some structured product on one side of the planet in Asia, typically. And some banks in the US or in Europe having to hedge their structured product books because of the retail business in Asia. And that creates some distortion in the market, in the pricing parameters of the market, which allows investors to in turn harvest that premium by providing liquidity where that implied parameter is depressed. And I think that's an area of innovation and of discovery there. We've danced a bit around sort of the evolution of factors, talked about sort of historically they've been naive linear sorts, and you've brought up machine learning a couple of times now, so I have to focus in on that a little. What impact do you think machine learning is going to have on factor definitions going forward? Well, machine learning can be used as a tool to better construct and better discover the factors. So as I was mentioning earlier, you could put all your indicators that you want to use to trade an asset class into your machine learning and just let the the algorithm to decide on what would be the best indicator to best forecast the sharp ratio or best manage the sortinal ratio or best reduce the drawdown. Or then you can introduce a new reward function in the machine learning jargon that you want so that you create the, the algorithm that best fits your, uh, your needs. So that's something that we've been doing on equity factors with some success, I must say. So we've launched the strategy back in one year and a half ago, actually. So where we are, we have an index on Bloomberg ticking and we, we have some of AUM on that. And the machine or the, the model learns what are the indicators that are best forecasting the, the next month's return of the stocks. And that model performed relatively reasonably in, a, in the past two year and a half in a period where that was really much challenged for factors, for equity factors. I think the algorithm is slightly up here to date and is up since we launched the algorithm. So and compare if we did when we did a peer-to-peer analysis, we're like the second ones in the peer-to-peer analysis. So you do have some fact 
some possible construction improvement to do when using those machine learning methods. And that gives you also a framework to think about your factors. So one example of that could be in Bones, if you're trying to discover new factors, you'd look at a wide range of indicators and you could run the same type of algorithm. I want to dive into some specific machine learning research I know you've been doing lately. I was able to find a paper that was published by some of your peers and you were thanked in that paper. So I know you had at least had a little bit of hand in it, at least in reviewing it. But it was the paper was on the application of recurrent neural networks in trend following, which I thought was really interesting. And I know this is something you've been researching internally and trend following is something near and dear to my heart. So I definitely wanted to bring it up. What in your opinion, do recurrent neural networks bring to the table when it comes to trend following that isn't already achieved with existing trend models? Why look to machine learning? On this work, well, I was trying to find applications for neural network because I guess as everyone in finance, I'm a bit, I'm observing what's happening in the other areas with neural networks. And you can see that it's a major disruptive technique in lots of area. So that's coming into finance, but we just need to find a way to make it happen. So I started with trend following because we had to start somewhere. And the idea was to say, okay, we have all those traditional ways of estimating a trend. So in our in-house model, we're using a form of measure the trends over several time windows and then several past time windows, and then we mix them based on some risk metrics, and then we average them and then finally get to get a signal. I guess the way that we do it is very standard. This was the industry standard of measuring and trends and constructing a trend uh, CTA type of model. I was like, and it's basically based on common sense. There's a bit of math behind to justify the parameters, but it's more or less common sense. So, okay, so now, we have the common sense base model that performs as we know, and we know that trend following is being challenged. And the idea was to say, okay, now let's try to use a modern technique to detect trend. Now for trend, trend detection, you have a big problem, which is the labeling of your data. So when you want to learn an algorithm, you need to label your data. So in a picture, it's very easy because you know a cat is a cat and a dog is a dog you can get a human operator to label the data for you. Now, what is a trend in financial market? <laughs> is it plus 10% over three months? Or you know, is it like plus 20% over a year? Is it like going up and down in a smooth manner? So visually your brain is geared towards recognizing patterns. And as a human being, we, we think we can recognize trends, but when you ask people to Identify where there is a trend is very challenging. So we, what we, we've done in this work is that we said, okay, we're going to solve the problem of labeling by simulating data. And this is also the new tendency that you see happening in the literature. And it's a very much a topic in finance at the moment. How do you simulate realistic data? So we said, okay. We don't know how to label trends in financial markets, but we know when we simulate a time series, if there is a trend in that time series or not, because you can simulate a trending process. So we simulated thousands and thousands of processes 
somewhere upward trending, some downward trending, some with no trends, and the trends was like breaking at random times. And, you know. So effectively, we had simulated thousands and thousands of possible assets. And then we say, okay, we get, now we, we have this big data set that is properly labeled because we knew how we've simulated. And we're going to feed that into a neural network. And we tried several architectures, this big debate about what is the best architecture to be using in, in some contexts. So some argue it's CNN, convolutional neural network, some other argue it's RNN, recurrent neural network. So here we used, we converge into RNNs, so recurrent neural networks. And so we had this, this neural network that learned how to recognize a trend based on simulated data. And the way that we were able to train it is because when the algorithm was wrong, we told him, no, you're wrong. We know the label, that trade, that data is trendy, so you should be recognizing a trend. So we, we showed in this paper that you, we mentioned, my colleague showed that they had a fantastic hit ratio using a recurring neural network compared to more traditional way of detecting trends on simulated data. And obviously, we're the when we tested the algorithm, we were using a new set of simulated data, right? So like out of sample type of simulated data. So now we have this object, a very complex mathematical object that is called a recurrent neural network, which has learned to detect trends on simulated data, properly labeled data. And we said, okay, now we're going to put into that algorithm some financial market data. And then guess what? <laughs> I was quite skeptical in a way because that neural network had never seen anything close to financial data before. And actually when we fed, so we fed like the algorithm with uh, all the possible futures time series that we could find, so like 60 time series or something like that for commodities, futures, rates, futures, effects, currencies, etc. And then we ran the transferring uh, algo and then at the end, we, we had something that was performing almost as well as our initial model. It's a lot of work for almost as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's more of a thought and experience. But it's quite fascinating because that algorithm didn't know anything about financial data. It knew, it knew about simulated data. So we had built, we have built the trend follower, CTA trend follower, with no chances of overfitting, <laughs> with zero chances of overfitting. And guess what? Over the recent past, that guy wasn't performing either, <laughs> which is another way to say that for trend following in particular, the lack of performance over the recent years is not so much due to overcrowding or things like that. It's much more due to price patterns and arguably central banks, and you can find all sorts of explanation, but more than overcrowding, because even a guy that doesn't know anything about financial data or risk of overfitting doesn't manage to recognize trends there. So I want to stick with that concept of crowding for a second, because it always it's always struck me that as systematic managers, the more people that we convert to our style of investing intrinsically, the more crowded our style of investing becomes. And it therefore challenges our ability to potentially 
generate returns going forward. You almost want to convince everyone that it's real so that you can gather AUM, but do so in a way that doesn't affect your alpha. It's this ultimate scale versus alpha problem. How do you think about these sort of risks of factor crowding going forward? Factor crowding is true in some cases. So for example, back in spring 2016, you had a massive rush from investors into low-vol quality that led into the big rotation, the secular rotation of the summer 2016 from quality low-vol into value. But you could see that in the prices. You could see in the factor prices, you could see this acceleration in price that was a manifestation of overcrowding. One of the indicators that I'm following um, when I'm looking at factors is the relative performance of a factor versus its peer. And whenever you see a factor uh, return accelerating versus its peer on a cross-sectional basis, this is most of the cases a sign of overcrowding or a sign of rush of investors into this factor, like a bubble, basically. And that happens. That happens regularly. If it's a matter of fact, I don't believe so, in a way. I believe it's momentous because at some point, lots of investors are going to get interested into growth and go into growth. Well, at the moment, it's, <laughs> it's a big rush into growth and it doesn't, it doesn't end. <laughs> There's a big rush into, uh, into uh, some U.S. stocks. <laughs> doesn't seem to end, but at some point that things revert normally. So just to say that factors in general are overcrowded, I think it's an exaggeration at least. So you need to look at factor by factor. So for example, trends, I don't think that at the moment there's an overcrowdedness in trends. There was a problem in December 2017, February 2018, after that massive rally in, in stocks in the US. CTA trend followers were massively long and over leveraged equity stocks. And that led into, that helps the sale of, that didn't help, and that made the sale of worse in February 2018. But at the moment, if you look at the positioning of trend followers, they're rather neutral. So the market can go either way. That will not have an impact. So it really depends on the leverage of the strategy, the amount of AUM that is in the strategy, and how many investors have been investing into the strategy. A lot of the factor crowding discussions are cross-sectional, but when you talk about something like trend following, there is that systematic beta component. And there have been some researchers that have argued that certain systematic trading strategies such as levered ETFs, CTAs, vol targeting strategies, and even just rebalancing itself have started to create predictable and overwhelming flows in the market that potentially are actually a, a systemic risk to market operations. What are your thoughts on this topic? Okay, it's really a depends on the size of those players versus the global market. So if you look at trend flowing back in 2018, January 2018, there was a massive over leverage of equity trend flows there. So that there was a risk there. If you look at risk parity funds before roughly the same time, before the COVID crisis, same thing, the leverage in risk parity was very high. So all those strategies that are levering up some assets are creating some distortion. 
But now it's, it needs to be monitored because it's not always the case. Now in uh, terms of leverage of risparity, for example, we, we came back down to, to levels that are two to three times lower to where we were before the COVID. So it's, a, it's clearly less of a risk. But it's true that in some market environments, and because a lot of funds, lots of strategies, lots of retail products are using some form of volatility targeting mechanism, that has a form of impact on market. And one of the most obvious impact is probably the compression of volatility that we've seen. Because when you, you're doing some volatility targeting of volatility selling and delta hedging, then that tends to suppress volatility. So that's something that every investor should monitor, really. <laughs> there are ways to benefit from that. So one thing that we've been studying is intraday trading patterns and the market microstructure. And on equity market, one thing that you notice is that in some market configuration, you tend to have trends at the end of the day. So you tend to have to start to see trends forming. And that tends to happen whenever the overall on the market, the, the market participants are what we call in the coin jargon negative gamma, which means that imagine you're an option hedger. If you're negative gamma, as your stock is going higher, your delta is going lower and it, you need to buy a little bit more stocks. So as your stock is going higher, you will have to buy more stocks. So if you're negative gamma, if the market is net de negative gamma, the market participants hedging those, having this gamma position will be forced into buying more stocks in an upward market and they will be forced to sell more stocks in a downward market. And Generally, those, those, those market participants, there are maybe option, option hedgers in banks who need to report zeros at the end of the day. There might be a levered ETFs who would need to value their funds at the end of the day. So they're forced into buying or selling more or less at the end of the day. So that, that tends to create those, those sorts of intraday trends that you see. So now if you are some investors that try to monetize that, what you can do is to construct trend falling position during the day. So say the market starts to go down. So you progressively sell the market following the trends. And at the end of the day, you net short the market and you provide liquidity to those who want to sell even more. And then you act as a liquidity provider at the close of the day and you're getting paid for that. It's a very subtle other source of premium. <laughs> that you can do. And that's the way that's the way to benefit from all those things if you want. To try to position yourself as a liquidity provider to flows who are forced to uh, to execute because of their strategy. There's ways of monetizing or you know making positioning your strategies if you want profitably, even though you have those uh, those distortions. Sandrine, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. The last question I want to ask, I know 2020 has been a weird and difficult year for a lot of people, so I'm trying to make sure we end these podcasts on a positive note. So I would love to know, going forward, what are you really excited about? And it can be research ideas or something personal. Just what is something you're really looking forward to? At the moment, I really look, I'm really, really looking forward to my holidays in Croatia, where I'm going to be sailing for three weeks. <laughs> well, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> Professionally speaking, I guess in terms of research, 
I'm really excited by a project that I'm considering at the moment, which is trying to compare convex optimization with a neural network again, but this time it's convolutional neural network, and to see which one of those guys will give me the best outcome in terms of powerful allocation. <laughs> so that's my, that's my research project. And I guess in terms of investment strategies, I'm, we've had quite a lot of success with hedging strategies. And that's something that I'm still actively working on because I think that we are, we're still in a in difficult environment. So, so I think there's lots of work to be done again. <laughs> that's exciting. Well, Sandrine, I can't thank you enough for joining. I look forward to reading that research in the future. I'm sure it'll be fascinating. Thank you, Corey. Thanks a lot.